Hi, everybody. I'm George, and welcome to The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And it's a real treat to have today's guest. She's the film and TV editor for Polygon, along with one of the co-hosts of the excellent film spotting podcast, The Next Picture Show. Tasha Robinson is here. Welcome, Tasha. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely a delight. And I was reading about how a lot of your experience growing up was more about reading criticism than it was about being able to sort of immerse yourself in seeing movies. And I would love to hear more about that and specifically sort of how horror entered the picture for you especially since reviews and horror can sort of fluctuate really wildly. Well, this may be hard to understand for uh, younger people growing up today, but for us like old ass people, there was a point in time where you couldn't just turn on the TV and choose from a billion different movies to watch on demand. I mean, I grew up in an era where if you wanted to go to a movie, you had to go to a movie theater. And when you're a kid in particular, that's just not an option. And <laughs> Uh, kids in those days also had uh, fewer employment options, fewer uh, side hustles. There was no way to to get on Etsy and monetize your uh, <laughs> your crafting or uh, sell your stuff on eBay, like any of that stuff. You were pretty much stuck with, are your parents the kind of people who take you to a lot of movies and theaters? So I just didn't see a whole lot of movies in theaters growing up. I mean, I didn't see no movies, but it wasn't, we weren't people who went to the cinema every week. So, you know, growing up without VCRs, without Netflix, without video on demand, without cable, like any of those things as options, I just didn't really get to get into cinema until college, uh, which was the first time I owned a VCR and was about the time that video rental stores got big. I was always kind of a coward when it came to horror. Like I, I grew up reading eventually Stephen King and, you know, I loved macabre books uh, like a lot of kids do. This was very much pre uh, Goosebumps, but, you know, I remember picking up books about werewolves and, and vampires and stuff sure. like that. Um, and I love Stephen King. I have a really visceral, visceral, I have a really <laughs> visceral memory of being maybe about 14, 15 and reading The Shining for the first time, uh, like alone in my room very late at night and then <laughs> just starting to get really creeped out by the fact that there was a door in my room. You know, because <laughs> I needed to pee, but the chances just seemed suddenly really high that if I got yeah. up and opened that door, there'd be something horrible on the other side of it. What if there's a rotting lady behind there? <laughs> I, what if there's a rotting <laughs> dude behind it? And what if yeah. there's a naked dude behind it oh, and he's man. hot and I go oh, in man. for the, oh. the move and oh. then something? I mean, it's just all sorts of horror. It's a confusing time. <laughs> it, it's a very, it's very confusing for uh, somebody who's spontaneously a, a naked ghost in a suburban <laughs> house uh, hanging out. <laughs> On the other side of a 15-year-old's door. It just doesn't Certainly. happen that often. Definitely. So, yeah, uh, even when I when I started being a movie buff, I still wasn't a horror buff. And that honestly did not come until post-college when I became a film critic. And I remember working at the AV Club and consciously thinking to myself, like, I, I can't be the film critic who's too scared to go to horror movies. You know, yes. you can't be a film critic and say, well... I like watching movies, but not documentaries and not comedies <laughs> and not horror films. You know, you, you can't right. be picky that way. So I started watching horror for the job, you know, taking assignments like everybody else. And for, for the longest time, I was still just scared to death of stuff that most critics would be like, hmm, eh, yeah, okay, whatever. 
Oh, only three eviscerations in this one, I suppose. <laughs> That'll do. It's actually movies like the one we're going to talk about today that maybe start seeing the craft in it. That and working with people like Scott Tobias, my my frenemy on the Next Picture Show <laughs> podcast. We argue a lot about movies. And uh, Noel Murray, uh, another critic who wrote frequently for the AV Club, um, both just wrote really intelligently about horror. And one of the things that I'd never really seen or understood about horror as a younger critic or a younger film goer is how societally important it is. You know, how much your average horror movie these days draws from concerns floating around in the zeitgeist, how uh, important catharsis is to entertainment. Like, I didn't see the need that these films were serving. When you grow up, again, uh, and your idea of horror movie is like a Friday the 13th 12 or uh, <laughs> a movie like The Prophecy, you don't really see them as art. And as soon as I started realizing how much art there was in horror films, I started to get really, really into the genre. And I'm probably going to be playing catch up my entire life, especially right now when there's so much good horror out there. Uh, but it's it's a fun occupation. Yeah. Wow. I'm basically in the same exact boat where I was a cowardly little lad <laughs> <laughs> and I I got really scared off by the it mini series you know especially uh the the first kill being named georgie didn't help and so i was really freaked out by that and my dad had a huge wall of stephen king books downstairs and so that this was this looming reminder <laughs> my entire life of how scary it was but i started getting into film criticism and you're right you 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 just like you can't just portion off part of movies and be like, I'm just not going to interact with this because there is there you you're missing out on so much. And even if it's not this just like directly in that movie, the influence that horror movies have in all the other genres that those directors might go on to touch. It's just ridiculous to assume that you are really absorbing like the state of cinema without it's like going into all of the different genres that it has to offer. So yes, basically all that to say, yes, I agree. Same. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm curious, you know, you mentioned your love for the shining, the movie we're talking about today features a ghost pretty prominently. I'm curious what sort of subgenres sort of draw you in. And uh, if there's one that you're like, yeah, I'm really like gonna give this one a chance. Uh, it, it has a, has a lot of goodwill going into it. Not really subgenres per se. I, I'm not really into gross-out gore. I mean, I can appreciate the the artistry that goes into, especially these days when so many uh, up-and-coming horror directors or really just up-and-coming directors are doing movies on the cheap and they're really going back to practical effects. Yeah. Like, I can appreciate a good head slushing uh, <laughs> to, to think of a movie I saw recently that's a practical effect that somebody labored over. Um, but for the most part, I, like I don't I don't particularly get off on gore. I'm not a gore hound. I like I like movies that are well constructed and well crafted, I guess. Uh more so like I don't care if it's got a ghost in it or a werewolf or a vampire or uh, a psychological effect. Um mm. you know, if it's about a madman or uh whatever. I don't I don't care that much. I might be gravitate a little more towards um fantasy tinged stuff you know I, I love me a pan's labyrinth mm. but i think ultimately 
what I want is something that makes me care about the characters. I love Cabin in the Woods, but for the most part, I don't care that much for horror comedy because mm-hmm. horror comedy tends to be very dismissive of the the characters because you're meant to laugh at them and they're often also very disposable. Yeah. So I prefer serious horror. I often like horror with a psychological element or with a fantasy element or the best, best of all, both. <laughs> but ultimately, all I'm looking for is something where... I honestly care about the characters and care whether they live or die. Well, we definitely get that in the movie we're talking about today, which is 2002's The Ring, directed by Gore Verbinski. Now, I was still a boy when this movie came out, so none of my friends were going to see it. But what makes The Ring so interesting to me is the way that it really just permeated culture in a pretty incredible way, because not only did we still know about this movie, there were dozens of nine-year-olds running around hissing seven days at each other, <laughs> it, like without having even seen it. It was just so in the zeitgeist and in the culture that it it had trickled down to, to even us lowly nine-year-olds. Yeah, my uh, now husband, then boyfriend, and I went to see it in a theater opening weekend and there was something wrong with the projection. So the um, the screening right before ours had been a little delayed. So, mm-hmm. you know, this this usually doesn't happen. I was in a crowd of people standing uh, in the multiplex, you know, up against the walls, lined up, waiting to go into the theater the second it emptied out. So mm-hmm. as a result, we got, to, we got to watch a full theater full of people empty out and all of them walked by us. And I have never seen a crowd look so shell-shocked. <laughs> Uh, people were kind of like muttering to themselves. They looked wrung out and haggard. And I turned to my husband. I'm like, what are we getting into? Are you sure we want to do this? Uh, and they, they looked traumatized. And it's a really interesting experience. You know, it's it's like I often compare horror movies to roller coasters in that it's a, a kind of a canned, predictable setup experiments. You know, you're not going to die, but for a lot of people, the experience is having that that adrenaline spike feeling of, oh, my God, am I going to die? <laughs> uh, and then you come out on the other end because it's, you know, a set course from the beginning. Yeah. But this it was like standing at the uh, the base of the biggest roller coaster in the world, watching people come off it nauseous and thinking, do I really want to do this to myself? Absolutely. You know, it, it sort of loomed really large in my mind because of uh, because of this sort of place that it had in, in terms of really sort of kicking off uh, another wave of horror in terms of what the the culture looked like and the output looked like. But so there was like a little bit of like kinder trauma there. But plus, it's hard to like you said, hard to pick and choose when you're trying to catch up. And I skipped out on horror for many, many years. And so I had not seen this prior. And that's part of why I love doing the show is the decision is made for me. And so I finally watched this. And I also watched Ringu, the movie that it's a remake of. Two big ones checked off the list. So thank you for that. Yeah. What is it like? You But you've seen The Grudge for the show, right? Yes. Right. So I, I have to ask, what's it like having never seen The Ring, but having seen movies derived from it? Like, does, does it have the visceral shock that it had for those of us who had never seen uh, a wet Asian long haired ghost? <laughs> Um, I think it does because, you know, this has a a pretty substantial budget, like comparatively. And I I, I think that this really pushes the PG-13 rating. And I was pretty shocked a lot of the times at just the the audacity of this movie (laughs) 
at what they were showing it was um it was kind of a shock and i i think that it was incredibly effective still in a really impressive way oh yeah i've seen this movie several times now but it's been definitely more than a decade and watching it again i got really unnerved at that the opening sequence in particular even knowing everything that's going to happen didn't quite prepare me for the way verbinski builds that opening sequence you know it's it's the scream style we're yeah. setting up the urban legend uh and then we're going to back off and deal with the actual characters you know right. it's a, like a little short story in and of itself but it starts off with uh, two teenagers discussing the cursed videotape that if you watch it, you die seven days later. And then there's just a series of fake outs, one after another, after another, after another horror yeah. movie. I'm going to open a door and block a hallway. And you know, when I close the door, there's going to be something horrible there. <laughs> and there isn't. And then he repeats that exact same beat again later. And you're like, this, this time it's going to happen. <laughs> and just various things happen that in each case, it's like, oh, oh, here it comes. Here it comes. This is going to be bad. Nope. Yeah. Nope. Just kidding. But it's both letting the, the audience in on kind of a joke. You know, these, these kids are talking about an urban legend and you feel that you're going to see it play out and you get to see them be terrified and be mock terrified and mock each other for being terrified and then be really terrified. And it's just <laughs> layers and layers of in joke. And yet at the same time, it just keeps building tension because you yeah. keep waiting for the shoe to drop and it keeps not dropping. Yeah. You know, it has to eventually. And the longer that he keeps playing with those ex expectations the you know, the more intense that payoff is finally going to be. It's great. What a great opening sequence. Uh, like I said, this is a remake of the Japanese movie Ringu from 1998, which is itself an adaptation of the book from 1991. Ringu was hugely successful, one of the 10 highest grossing movies in Japan that year. Uh, notably, it beat The Matrix at the Hong Kong box office that year as well. And Ringu found a foothold here in the U.S. as well. And between this and The Sixth Sense and The Blair Witch Project releasing in 1999, we sort of saw the beginning of a pretty distinct shift away from the like Kevin Williamson style 90 slashers and these uh, stale franchise entries that were kind of getting pumped out to this more minimalist atmospheric horror that tended to have a pretty strong supernatural bent, which I think, you know, these waves come and go. I think that uh, in the grand scheme of things, uh, the wave that this sort of kicked off is um, a pretty good one. Yeah, it definitely kind of like brought back the the idea of like the well constructed horror movie where you care about the characters, you know, which is yeah. one of the one of the reasons I love it. But it also really heavily capitalizes on sound design and on jump scares, and mm. and and to some degree on on PG thirteen grotesquery. Like there's a fair bit of really unsettling imagery in here. But none of it's essentially uh, based in sex or violence. So, you know, it, do it doesn't feel like a hard R movie at all. It yeah. <laughs> barely feels like a PG-13 <laughs> movie, except for the emotional impact it has on you. Yes. Uh, and, you know, the the idea of, of grotesque child murder. <laughs> yeah, right. Certainly uh, on that level, it, uh, it, it can unnerve. And one of the people that Ringu connected with was uh, DreamWorks executive Mark Sarian, who called up two other executives, Walter Parks and Laurie McDonald. And he said, I've just seen the scariest movie I have ever seen in my life. You have to see it right away. 
And when they all did, they decided it would be perfect to remake. And DreamWorks had just produced uh, Verbinski's future debut, Mouse Hunt, which was a decent-sized success. It made $122 million worldwide on a $38 million budget. Not bad, especially considering that it went up against Titanic, <laughs> which is famously one of the biggest successes in the world. And so based on their established relationship, along with his focus on visuals, uh, they sent him a copy of the tape for Ringu and it grabbed him immediately. And he described it as avant-garde pulp, which I, I really like that description of it. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, th I think it's interesting that Ringu grabbed them all so hard, because if you watch Ringu for the first time, having seen the ring, Ringu <laughs> is not all that scary by comparison. No. <laughs> it's Yeah, there's... It's pretty close to the same story you know they they definitely didn't do the uh english language remake thing where they changed 95 percent of it and keep the title right. it's it, you can very much see like they they took the bare bones of it the main thing they dropped was uh the the noah character the ex-husband character um in the original japanese version is psychic just just randomly he's sure. got psychic <laughs> powers like you do uh, which I guess is a much more common trope in Japanese horror, uh, yeah. certainly than it is in America. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it means they've got to lean a little harder on kind of the the journalism, uh, the the running down of clues, as opposed to, you know, my psychic powers tell me we have to go here. Right. Uh, but all that said, watching the same beats in the Japanese movie, it's just it's not as frightening. Um, no. And if you want a great comparison for it, uh, the big horror climax of the film, you can just go find that on YouTube. I actually just watched it again, half an hour ago hmm. and kept thinking like, this is just, it's directed in a much like looser, softer way. The character's reaction to what's going on is unnerved, but rarely really terrified. And then kind of the final uh, effect is just not, not particularly frightening in the way it's done. Right. So, the whole movie to me felt like that, like watching Ringu later. I was like, oh, I, I see where they saw the potential. I, I can't imagine watching this and being just having your pants pants. How, how am I trying to phrase that? What what is the relationship between pants and fear? Having yeah. them scared off of you. Having the pants scared off of you is what I was going for. But somehow I, I blundered into a corner, a, a pants corner. <laughs> Yeah, I, I do agree. There was the one thing in Ringu that I did like was the there's a little more focus and visual clarity on the like ripped out fingernails, which I was mm. like, oh, that's gross. <laughs> but but otherwise, yes, I agree. I think that um, it, it is kind of funny that they were so, so shaken by it. But, you know, it is what it is. And, and I found this quote from Gore that says. The first time I watched the original Ringu was on a VHS tape that was probably already seven generations down. It was really poor quality, but actually that added to the mystique, especially when I realized that it was a movie about a videotape. There's something about that image of a seemingly innocuous videotape just sitting there unlabeled. If you're aware of the myth, the object itself becomes both tempting and haunting, and it's not enough that you will die. For seven days, you know that you're going to die. There's that desperation as you get closer to the end and start to feel the walls closing in on you. And that, I think, brings a uniqueness to the horror. And I think that he's spot on in terms of the claustrophobia of feeling trapped and desperate, really sort of triggering the fight or flight animalistic instinct of Naomi Watts's character, Rachel, in this. And it does make that 
like sort of ticking clock aspect so powerful and important and scary. So there's a sequel to the original Ringu. Uh, there's a sequel novel called Spiral, and it was adapted into a film, which didn't do particularly well. So then there was a sequel to Ringu called Ringu 2 that diverted away from the novel that also uh, didn't do nearly as well as the original ring then there was a sequel to the american version of the ring that was the ring 2 and then various other spin-offs and eventually <laughs> rings which is an unbelievably bad <laughs> horror film and a lot of those uh, films did interesting things with the idea that you're you're specifically talking about i feel like in the ring as much dread as Naomi Watts feels, like early on, she dismisses the whole thing as a as a hoax, as an urban right. legend, like much like anyone would when told, uh, "Oh, by the way, in seven days you're going to die because you watched a videotape." The reaction that her ex boyfriend, the father of her child, has when he learns about the whole thing, I think is is properly dismissive, even more dismissive than she originally. Did. Yeah. But all of these sequels and spinoffs and and franchise builder things do end up playing with that idea a whole lot as you get more and more people who do know about the videotape and know it's not a hoax and watch it for one reason or another and know about the copying issue uh, that becomes a, a big a big thing um, right. about being able to put it off if you get somebody else to watch it or if you copy it. So as the the one thing that the sequels do that I think is interesting is play with the anticipation idea and the idea of you can just get somebody else to watch this tape, you're off the hook, yeah. but then they're on the hook. And a lot of different games narratively get played throughout all of these sequels with people pretending they're going to watch and then closing their eyes and not watching or saying <laughs> they're going to watch, but yeah. losing their nerve and putting the videotape away or, or whatever. Just all of these uh, different ways in which people refuse to continue the chain and i think it raises you know horror raises a lot of interesting moral questions a lot of the time about yeah. what you're willing to do for survival uh what you're willing to do to other people what you're willing to do for other people when it threatens your survival and i think the rings franchise ends up taking up a lot of interesting questions about how much you owe to other people when you know your actions could literally save their life and and put yourself on the chopping block. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting. And Verbinski himself also thought that that was super interesting. I, I this quote that he said here is, is he said this this is, there's a viral aspect to the urban myth, the way that it's told, the way that it's repeated, the way it catches on. No one can ever really know the truth that possibly lies behind it. And Koji Suzuki's book Ringu was supposedly based on an urban myth that already existed, but it's the chicken and the egg thing. I don't believe we'll ever know the origins for sure. Our journey begins with a videotape that comes with the warning, but it's the warning that makes it that much more interesting to us. Taboos are always accompanied by the temptation, and it's it's the essential quality of human nature to discover the forbidden. And knowing that this is about us is what makes the evil essence of the ring all the more horrifying, which this idea of having to sort of confront your own morality in terms of saving your own life at the expense of someone else's I think is a really interesting question and it sort of calls to mind even uh, like the influence that uh, that this is having, I think really uh, shows in movies like it follows, uh, I think really sort of plays a lot with that. Um, and there, it feels like a pretty direct line <laughs> from ring uh, from the ring to, to it follows in a, in a good way, in a way that I think um, 
they're both asking interesting questions and playing with it in a, in a cool way. Yeah, I think It Follows was one of the first post-ring horror movies I saw that really felt like instead of trying to channel the specific imagery uh, for that impact, tried to channel the very specific dread of right. knowing this thing is coming for you, knowing that other people can forestall it for you if they if they're willing to to take the plunge. Uh, knowing that in the process of doing that, you're putting their life on the line in, in place of yours. And just also the inevitability of the thing. I, I like It Follows an awful lot. And some of it is just because it, it captures some of the things that I felt coming out of the ring. Yeah, definitely. Aaron Kruger wrote three drafts of the screenplay before Scott Frank came on to do an uncredited rewrite, uh, although they began production without a completed script. And the portions that weren't filmed in L.A. were filmed on location in Washington, which they picked for its uh, wet and gloomy environment to sort of add to the dread of it all. And while they're making the movie, understandably, Verbinski felt that one of the biggest challenges was making sort of the cursed videotape at the center of it all, uh, because he said that the tape had two functions. It had to contain clues to its origins and to understanding why it was created. As abstract as it had to appear at first viewing, as you progress, these images have to have a reason to be. The video also had to be bizarre to shock you without seeming to have been designed to do so, which is a tricky thing to do. I started with some of the key images from the Japanese film because when you remake a movie, you want to keep some of the great moments from the original. Then for me personally, I drew on what scared me, my own kind of horrors, and tried to include them in a way that was compelling but could also make sense from the perspective of the person who made the video. I'm a big fan of horror films. But there are ones that simply shock you, and there are ones that operate more subversively. These have a particular psychological manipulation going on that the viewer is not completely aware of. When they work, they can be a tremendous residual effect. These films stay with you longer because they get under your skin. All horror films are derived from essentially very simple premise, as it is in our film. It's only in the execution that certain films elevate themselves beyond the genre. These are the ones that inspire me because they scare me the most. Ultimately, it's about the craft, which I think is exactly what you were saying about what sticks out to you about this movie and the care that he put into designing the cursed film, I think, speaks volume about that. Oh, for sure. I mean, Noah, the ex-boyfriend character, kind of passes the whole thing up as very student art film. And it is in a way, but it's really unnerving on first yeah. watch. It, it seems so nonsensical. And yet you're looking at close-ups of wet eyeballs and writhing bugs and writhing naked human bodies and severed body parts. Just all of these things piled up on top of each other. This is one of the areas you can also go to YouTube and just watch the Japanese version of that videotape. And, and it's nothing. It, it's yeah. a bunch of people standing around in black and white. It's it's not particularly weird or unnerving or scary. But one of the things that is is just kind of a, a gimmick, a trick that makes the ring feel so satisfying is that sense of tumblers falling into place as as every single one of those seemingly weird, disconnected, nonsensical, scary images in the original videotape slowly uh is uh, the meaning of it is uncovered you know the, yeah. where it where it comes from um starts to make sense bit by bit 
and it's just I, it, it feels like putting together a, a jigsaw puzzle and just that that sensation that kind of satisfying s- sensation of feeling the pieces click into place absolutely and another important part of the visuals is both the subdued color scheme of the movie which was inspired by new england artist andrew wyeth and one of the few exceptions to this subdued color scheme which is a red japanese maple tree named lucille after lucille ball <laughs> um <laughs> which is it's actually a fake tree built out of steel tubing and plaster with painted silk for leaves um, and they had a hell of a time keeping it stable. And uh, interestingly, in addition to working visually and as an homage to the Japanese roots of the movie, the fruit of the Japanese maple tree is called a uh, Samara. So there you go. Oh, wow. I did not know that. This is also the first time that Verbinski collaborated with Hans Zimmer. They would go on to do a whole, whole bunch of movies together, including the iconic Pirates of the Caribbean score. Yeah, the Pirates of the Caribbean score are very important to that movie series, very much used to to key into mood and key into character. Uh, but it's just such a different animal from what Zimmer does here. I, yeah. I would say a good 50% of the sheer unrelieved dread, like the the ominous fear in this movie comes from the score and yeah. and from the sound effects, the, just the overall sound design. And maybe nowhere more so than when you're watching that videotape for the first time. Yeah. Uh, another area where it really stood out to me in a, in a really positive way is when uh, Naomi Watts is sort of running down the stairs and you get that great like vertical through the stairway shot and the score is just like pumping as she's running down trying to get to Noah in time um and uh it was just a really really great piece of score i think that zimmer is really he's firing away on this one <laughs> yeah there's also there's a sequence where while rachel is having noah watch the videotape for the first time she decides she doesn't want to be in the room for it so she walks out onto his balcony and she's looking into the apartment building across the way where a lot of people have their TV screens on. Right. And the sound design lets each one of those TVs kind of like fade in to the periphery. You can just barely hear what's going on. And there's nothing necessarily ominous about this. You know, it's it's a rear window moment of voyeurism. But she's yeah. just looking in people's windows and they're doing entirely innocuous things like vacuuming or uh, picking out clothes to go somewhere. But it's the score that tells you how she's feeling at that moment. I think what it comes down to for me is so often movie scores are telling you how to feel. And that may be one of the better cases I've I've come across where I felt like the score was telling me how she was feeling yeah. and letting me in on it without forcing the moment for me personally. Yeah, I really liked that scene as well. It definitely is very rear window, especially considering that there's a, a guy sit, uh, sitting there with his cast in a in a wheelchair and everything. Yes. <laughs> so uh, a nice little nice little moment there. Yeah, Verbinski is very, very aware of his uh, his sources. He knows who he's paying yes. homage to. He also came into this with a pretty healthy attitude of expect the worst, hope for the best. Uh, he claimed that the wave of harsh criticism from hardcore fans of the original was inevitable, but that he was hopeful the fans would ultimately find it equally as compelling. And I got to say, Gore, you did it, pal. <laughs> yeah, I have yet to run across anybody who thinks Ringu is uh, just a hugely superior film that this film betrayed. Uh, that's just not right. an opinion I've ever heard. Yeah. And the marketing team worked freaking overtime on this movie. Uh, much as with the Blair Witch Project, sort of the lines between reality and fiction got blurred in a really interesting and surreal way. They put copies of the killer tape under chairs at concerts and events that had a label sending them to an openletter.com. 
And there you'd read about someone who'd cre- who'd seen the tape and was tr- trying to warn others. Plus, you'd find links to other pages created by the studio, including one written by one of Katie's friends who didn't hear about her death and thought she was kidnapped, and a page for scientists who were researching psychic phenomena involving TV transmissions. Plus, during the summer of 2002, they had the cursed video play during late night TV programming with just no reference to the movie. It would just play terrifying and it's kind of incredible the way that they pull you in sort of extending out of your tv into reality just the way that uh, samara does at the end of the movie that is some uh some good viral marketing and i'm immediately slightly repulsed by the entire idea (laughs) stupid stupid blair witch and it's ruining everything for everybody in terms of we've got to pretend that this is a real thing and not a movie As far as reception, like you said, it was a pretty pretty big success. Uh, it made just under $250 million on a $48 million budget, and it had mostly positive reviews, although I think nobody will be surprised to hear that Roger Ebert found this ghost story, quote, borderline ridiculous, two stars. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Roger. Yeah, that man, he did not like his genre films very much, but that's okay. And, uh, you know, this reception made it the highest grossing horror remake ever until It Chapter 2, or It Chapter 1, excuse me, uh, dethroned it in 2017. So that's a pretty pretty big honor. Wow. Is It Chapter 1 really considered a horror remake as opposed to just an adaptation of the same property? I That's sort of a strange way of looking at it, I think. I mean, I guess that you could say the same about the ring though with the the book that ringu was based on yeah that's fair you could you could say that this isn't an adaptation of the the movie and it's an adaptation of the book i did read ringu and spiral when i was on my uh, just like super hardcore post ring uh <laughs> all all things ring kick and as with so much translated japanese literature like i've i've read a fair few uh translated japanese pop novels just because i'm always a little obsessed with the <laughs> with with novels that become movies you know with the the transformation from one to the other um back sure. at the av club i used to do a laboriously detailed and very boring to everyone but me column <laughs> about the transformation that movies go through on their way to the books go through on their way to becoming movies so i read all of the books and the the translations just come across as very flat you know there's mm. there's not a lot of prose life to them they aren't that interesting so i i strongly suspect that gore verbinski was looking at the movie you know, definitely for some of his visual inspirations, very right. specifically, in addition to the blow by blow uh, story plot descriptions. I just I kind of doubt that the director of it was uh, looking back to the, the TV <laughs> version, which however much it uh, it scared you, I did not think that the TV adaptation was all that great. No, no. I think that if I if I had not been a very young child when I saw it, I think it probably wouldn't have affected me quite as much. But, uh, you know, I'm I'm willing to say, uh, okay, this is still the highest grossing horror remake of all time then in that case. I mean, it's not up to me to to dictate who labels sure. what, so right. I, I'm not going to push on it. But it, just, <laughs> it does strike me as a little odd. Yeah, hey, I, I, I certainly see your point. It, it is a bit of a watershed movie, though, because like I said, it was a huge crossover hit for horror fans. The, and The Ring kicked off this J-horror craze in the U.S., an increase in general demand for Japanese horror in the U.S., along with a boom in importing and access, huge from both an archival and fan base standpoint. But in addition to the new fascination with already-made Japanese media, it created this sort of indelible shift in the studio output that I talked about, where 
Hollywood started cranking out Asian horror remakes and J horror remakes in particular, like crazy based on the success of the ring. It was basically one per year for J horror, including uh, the grudge in 2004, dark water in 2005 pulse in 2006, one missed call in 2008. So no 2007, but uh, don't look up in 2009 and then apartment uh, 1303 in 2012 and in 3d, I might add. And then, you know, depending on your inclination, you could also kind of lump in, uh, the 2014 Godzilla as an Americanized J-horror movie as well. And uh, Aronofsky's Black Swan isn't a direct adaptation of anything, but it has a lot of influence from Perfect Blue. Uh, he even bought the rights a decade earlier to make sure that he didn't have any issues with specific scenes that he sort of took a lot of influence from. And that that huge list that I just went off on doesn't even include remakes of Asian horror films from other regions like The Eye from Hong Kong and Shudder from Thailand. So huge, huge shift in the in the output of American uh, studios. Yeah. And to some degree, I, I feel like it improved horror just in a, a permanent and ongoing way. I, I think that a lot of these like the the Japanese movie traditions in particular were just drawing on a like a pluralistic society's idea of ghosts and spirits in mm. a way that. Uh, you know, America just never had. And a lot of America's horror tended to be very prosaic, you know, coming out of Psycho, but not as smart as Psycho, just kind of dealing with the idea of a person goes crazy and uh, runs around with a knife. Right. And adding the supernatural element in, I think, uh, enriched the symbolism an awful lot. You can make zombies stand in for a lot of different societal ills, you know, creeping and spreading societal ills. And you can make ghosts stand in for an awful lot of uh, symbolic ideas about memory, about about yeah. grief and loss, about uh, crimes or sins that we've committed that just won't go away. There's There's just a lot of richness in there that you look back on a lot of early American horror and, you know, you see exploitation films and rape revenge films and crazy slasher movies and not nearly as much as of this kind of like, like rich, weird, symbolic spiritualism. Um, right. I'm all for the J horror uh, boom and the import horror boom in general. I just, <laughs> I wish that so much of it hadn't come with this identical imagery of, <laughs> you know, the, the drowned ghost, which is a very like deep seated piece of, uh, of Japanese lore. Uh, and that's why we keep getting the, the image of it over and over. But it's as though Nightmare on Elm Street came out and like 10 different studios all said, oh, you know, what people, what scares people and what they want in horror is burned up looking people in striped shirts. Like, we got to have a dream demon. Everybody. From now on, every, put every demon and every ghost in a stripy shirt. That's what scares people. So, yeah, the, the little boomlet that followed that of uh, drowned ghost American movies you know, and again, many of them remaking, you know, Dark Water and uh, The Eye wasn't a Drowned Ghost movie, but I, I always come back to it because it was the remake was <laughs> such a weird bomb. Yeah, it was pretty different from the Japanese one, if I recall yeah, correctly. For as sure. Well, right. Yeah. But, uh, you know, Dark Water and The Grudge, you know, the returning to just this very specific imagery uh, kind of blunted it a little. You know, the the desire to have specifically ghosts and spirits played by acrobats capable of uh, like doing bizarre feats of, of running around yeah. on their hands and feet with their <laughs> with their backs arched and their stomachs towards the sky and their heads turned around the wrong way. Like it just became a, a repeated image 
that kind of took away a little of like the sheer unadulterated horror, like just, just pants wedding. We're going to go back to pants horror <laughs> that I experienced the first time I saw the ring. Yeah. It does sort of feel a little like a photocopy of a photocopy of a photocopy kind of thing where you get these uh, diminishing returns, but there's no denying that the ring was hugely influential. And uh, you know, I think it says something about the fact that they never really got any better than the one that kicked it off. Yeah, that's fair. The ring is also, you know, it, it plays with a lot of pretty familiar tropes. And one of the big one is the creepy kid. Uh, there are a lot of, of creepy, unnatural children in both American horror films and <laughs> maybe just every country. Maybe we're all a little. Everyone's freaked out by children. kids. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, they're weird little dudes, weird <laughs> little dudes and dudettes. Uh, for sure, the, for sure. At the best of times. But um, the, the actor that plays uh, Aiden, the little boy, uh, David Dorfman, is just, I mean, he's he's right up there with the kid in The Shining, as far as yeah. I'm concerned, for not necessarily naturalistic uh, in his performance, but believably childish and believably creepy at the same right. time. Uh, he just he has a very expressive face and the fact that they deliberately make him a little weird and a little precocious i think helps yeah. explain his behavior but rewatching this film every time i rewatch this film um his his expressions and his his big startled like knowing far too much eyes uh, are always yeah. kind of part of the the element that creeps me out yeah definitely i think that he's really good in this i also think that they do a good job of kind of balancing it where you know he is a creepy kid but they still make him likable enough that you are worried when he's in trouble and that you are like i understand why they're fighting so hard to protect him and everything you know i mean i i laughed i found it very charming every time he called uh rachel rachel <laughs> and, and i thought it i thought it was very cute and uh I yeah I thought I thought that they, he did a really good job of kind of balancing that weirdness and being put off by his mediumness uh, with making him uh, a, a character that you don't mind having around. You know, how, so many times movies are sank by child characters who are annoying, even if it's annoying on purpose. You know, it's still not necessarily something that you want to spend time experiencing. Yeah, for um, sure. So I think that this does a really great job of finding that that middle ground. Yeah, that detail of him calling his mother Rachel, like never anything softer or more familiar, uh, is something I think that both it, it's interesting and I just respect the film for never blinking on it. Usually yeah. when you set something up like that in a film, it's so you can have a big sentimental moment at the end where he finally calls her mommy. Right, and at the end. <laughs> no, the film doesn't blink on that. No way. And there's a lot of aspects of the script here. Like we never get an explanation for him calling her Rachel. We never find out that she asked for it. We never find out if she has a problem with it or if she has always been fine with it. Like a lot of things about their relationship are undefined. And similarly, her relationship with Noah, you're a good chunk of the way into the film before you find out that they they definitely did have a romantic past, uh, that Aiden is their kid. And it makes a lot of sense out of the sort of weird tension and dependence between them. I really like that relationship a lot. It's so unusual in cinema 
you know, they, they don't ever sit down and explain, um, here's our history. Uh, here's how <laughs> right. we feel about each other. Now you're just, you're left to take all of it from the uneasy way they act around each other from the way she's very clearly jealous when she sees she has, when she sees he has another woman in his life, but also, but not jealous enough to like say anything about it. Cause she knows she doesn't have the right to. Right. She calls on him when she needs help, but she doesn't ever lean on him. She doesn't look for him like for physical support from him. There's a right. lot of little complexities in that relationship uh, that I just really appreciate, like all the more so because they don't bog the film down because they don't ever bother to explain them or talk to talk to us about them. They're just the realities of their their fairly complicated emotional uh, life. Yeah, I like that relationship a lot too. And I think that that's one of the areas that really improves over Ringu in that I think that when the Noah equivalent sort of enters the picture, he really does tend to take over a little bit in uh, in a way that sort of shoves the the Rachel equivalent to the side a bit. And uh, I just think that they, they do such a great job of, uh, like you said, sort of communicating that relationship that they have in, in other ways, in the ways that they sort of uh, are uncomfortable when uh, his his employee slash girlfriend slash partner in crime uh, shows up. And, and uh, yeah, it's just it's spectacular. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back to the show. Hey, everybody, George here, and I wanted to tell you about the membership driver doing for the best little horror house in Philly Patreon. Uh, you hear me talk about it at the end of every episode during the plug section, but basically the Patreon is where you can support the show for just a few dollars a month while getting all kinds of great perks, including bonus episodes like spotlights on Begotten and Solaris, hot movie court action with legal thriller, uh, we're doing a watch-along of X-Files and having a community discussion, video episodes, and an ad-free feed to avoid having to hear stuff like this very ad. Plus, this March, if you sign up at the $8 tier, not only are you going to get all the tier rewards we offer, we're even going to send you the best little horror pin in Philadelphia. If you follow us on social, you recognize the design. And I'm not going to tell you that it's a blend of Chucky and Gritty done by the excellent local artist Zach Woomer, but I will tell you that this orange Philadelphia monster will be your friend till the end. Okay, sign up today at patreon.com forward slash little horror PHL. And thanks to everyone who's already a supporter. Back to the show. To get into the actual movie, uh, one, right away, I really love the production card <laughs> that it's fun for DreamWorks. There's this VHS artifacting and the D turns into a ring. It's a nice little extra mile thing, especially for a big studio. You know, they didn't have to do that, but I like it. I, I love the trend. And these days it's it's pretty common. You know, these days, if you if you don't have a, a title card in joke, like who even are you? But it was a little rarer back then, and I love it when uh, when studios do something like that, when they let the filmmaker kind of play with that image a little bit. Yes, absolutely. And it opens up, and it's always kind of surreal to me when you've seen a parody a bunch of times. Uh, in this case, the opening of Scary Movie 3, which I had seen as a much younger uh, person. And then you watch it played straight for the first time, and it's it's – so wild because i you know you keep waiting for the, like the joke beats and and stuff and they do sort of happen in this one because like you said they are going back and forth and they're playing around with each other and and joking around and the way that it does sort of ratchet up i think it's just so so effective and uh, we're we're in seattle these two these two girls are hanging out it's katie and becca and they're talking about how TVs and cell phones and everything are killing our brain cells. So Becca one-ups her with the story of this cursed videotape that kills whoever watches it in seven days. 
<laughs> and so Katie is freaked out by this description of the tape. She says that she watched it and it's been a week. She pretends to choke. Very funny. There you go. Second fake out. That's how they get you. She gets got for real finally. And it's a great scene when it really does kick off. I really like all the close-ups and low angles as the panic starts to set in. And then it happens so quick that it really knocks me off balance. Yeah, it's a fascinating way of telling the story because you're you're introduced to the idea that this is an urban legend, that this is something that like kids know about, that, that pretty young people know about, that of course adults wouldn't believe in or understand, but that they kind of use as a weapon against each other like uh, like telling ghost stories around the campfire it's just here's the thing i can say to freak you out (laughs) and if i'm lucky i'll get an emotional reaction i can make fun of but by the end of it we know that there's something actually going on and we don't see what it is so that's gonna just like hang over our heads the entire movie is something happened that was so terrifying it turned this like perfectly healthy young woman into a, a rotting goo ball curled up in a Ooh. closet. Uh, and we don't even see that for very long. There's a lot of near subliminal stuff flashing by on the screen in this movie that's <laughs> meant to both make you kind of want more and make you dread more at the same right. time. It's just, it's exactly the right amount of uh, kind of terrifying titillation. Mm-hmm. And that whole sequence is basically setting you up for uh you know something horrible is going to happen, but you you didn't get to see it, which means you didn't have to see it. And now you have to think, do you, do you want to see it? Of course you want to see it. No, you don't want to see it. You know, that, that's that's, right. that's the essence of horror. You know, the thing that Inside you dread you seeing. Two wolves. <laughs> uh, the, the wolf of I'm terrified to see this and the wolf, like, I can't wait to see this. Horror movies feed them both pretty equally. That's right. That's right. And we finally cut to a schoolroom. Like, it's this really harsh cut where Katie's aunt, Rachel Keller, played by Naomi Watts, who I adore Naomi Watts. I think that she's great. I feel like I'm one of the few people who liked the King Kong remake. <laughs> I love Mulholland Drive. And she's, she's just really spectacular in this as well. It's it's interesting. I, I assume just from some of the uh, the trivia that you're bringing in that you ran across the like the putative casting list, the people that they tried to get to play this role uh, who turned I did. it down. And I think it's really interesting that Gore, Vins- Gore Verbinski has been out there saying like, oh, no, I wanted unknowns. I, I wanted people who didn't have a whole lot of, uh, you know, movie experience because I wanted people to be able to discover this and I wanted it to be able to uh, to feel mysterious. And at right. the same time, like <laughs> they asked Jennifer Love Hewitt to play the central <laughs> role among other people. Putting the who in Jennifer Love Hewitt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but no, I, I think that that's really interesting. I you know, whether he's just trying to cover up for that or, or something. But, you know, I think that there is something to that idea of people sort of coming across it and not being sure of, of if it's if it's real or not. Um, one, I have long said that uh, the only way that they could ever make a movie of uh, House of Leaves is if somebody just completely under the record, like nobody knows about it, makes a like found footage movie of the Navidson record. And then somebody like a studio, whoever made it says, okay, we're going to make a documentary about this movie that sort of took over and, and people started finding it. And then it's, it's about the movie, the, it's sort of like made in like half documentary, half found footage. Uh, it, it would be a very elaborate basically is what I'm saying. But the only way that you could do it is um, by really letting it build up steam and, and pick up on its own. 
um, which is, I think, what Gore Verbinski is trying to do here. So you'd be trying to kind of use the the inset film to represent the, the like the super meta textual like this is a right. book that you're reading that's full of book elements aspect of yes. House of Leaves. That's a wild idea. Look, studios out there, call me. <laughs> are people are people ravening at the gates for an adaptation of House of Leaves though? I mean, that's you know, to me that book feels just like Lovecraftian in its uh, its level of, and then something horrible happened, but we can't really tell you what uh, because yeah. something something preceded it that we can't describe, <laughs> and it all came out of something far too esoteric to explain. The end. Yes, look, I, I certainly think there is an element of that, and and sort of the idea of just this darkness, and and how can you communicate the scariness of darkness without just having a black screen. And, uh, you know, maybe maybe it is unfilmable. Maybe it is an unfilmable uh, book. But I don't know. I, I just feel like so I have a, a very tiny House of Leaves tattoo. It, it's uh, the word house in blue. <laughs> and the two reactions that I get, first and foremost, I get people asking me if I love House MD, which I do <laughs> like that show. But that's not what the tattoo is for. <laughs> Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and the second reaction that I get is people just being like, oh, my God, House of Leaves. Yes. Wow. Look at this. I have one, too. This is incredible. I love this book. And so I feel like there is sort of a fan base who would be really interested to see uh, an adaptation of this book. Maybe I'm just trying to manifest it. <laughs> that's incredible. Know. You don't get people thinking you're uh, like a fan of the Japanese horror film or the uh, the 1980s haunted house horror film. I wish I wish that that was the case. <laughs> I, I would tell them similarly. Yes, I do love that movie. <laughs> but yes, I, that was a big digression, basically, to say that I love House of Leaves and uh, I have ideas out there, Hollywood. Let me know. <laughs> <laughs> but so we finally get to Katie's aunt and we hear her arguing with her editor before we see her. <laughs> which this stuff is all very fun. I love the scene of her at work later when he like tries to fire her and she's like, I'm not fired. I got too good of a story cooking. <laughs> and how quickly he goes from no, seriously, you're fired to, well, what's the story? Right. <laughs> and she just blows him off. It's oh, yeah. certainly understood from that. I think that she's uh, just that she's willful, that she probably has had this relationship with him for a while. I don't take his attempts to fire her particularly seriously at all. Right. But About as seriously as she does. <laughs> yeah. But you definitely get the impression that uh, he has issues with her cockiness and she just responds to them by doubling down on, on being even more cocky yeah and i think it sets us up pretty nicely for the contrast when she starts getting really unnerved by the videotape it's kind of important to have already had her set up as kind of a, a hard-bitten practical person maybe yeah. that's why her son calls her rachel is there's just sort of this distancing effect of there's not a whole lot of soft maternal elements to her and there's mm -hmm. definitely not a lot of you know girly like easily frightened elements to her so when she starts getting really visibly unnerved it's got to be a come down from this level of of cocky confidence that that shows us exactly how afraid we should be as opposed yeah. to if they hadn't done the character work you know you might just think oh yeah she's uh she's kind of a coward huh <laughs> yeah absolutely and she's there she's picking up her son aiden and the teacher shows her a bunch of drawings that he's been doing <laughs> lately of uh, of Katie in the ground, which is creepy, but Rachel kind of brushes it off until it's revealed that Aiden has been drawing them since before Katie's death, which is a pretty good, like, ooh, creepy moment. 
horror movies have gotten almost as much uh, mileage out of small child draws creepy thing <laughs> as it's gotten out of just small child is creepy in general. It's it's yeah. such a trope. It's, it's still fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I still have a nice time with it. I I want to like my low key uh, life goal is to get out of movie criticism and just become a person who draws extremely crude childish drawings <laughs> from movies to represent horrible things going on because that's about my level of drawing skill anyway. <laughs> So if it's just a matter of like scribbling circles on a thousand pieces of paper uh, to represent a, a disturbed child haunted by the ring, I, I'm pretty sure I could do that. Hey, someone's got to. <laughs> the funeral scene is really good, too. We get to sort of see how it shattered this family. And it does sort of indicate to us why Rachel would be so willing to acquiesce to her sister's desire for answers. And who among us cannot relate to Katie's mom going down a WebMD rabbit hole? I also just love like when she when she catches on that Katie's peers might know something and she goes out to smoke with them and is really trying to play the cool kid. And <laughs> she says something to them to the effects of like, you know, hey, I remember like hanging out and being being like you. And what she's kind yeah. of trying to say is, I'm not that old. I'm, I'm really not that old. I'm not that <laughs> we different from you. used to go up and smoke dope. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was like real cool how we used to smoke the reefers uh, in my <laughs> in my bungalow. Uh, and they you guys just, got a spare jazz cigarette for me? <laughs> Hello, fellow kids. <laughs> and they just they give her all of the contempt that it deserves. But at the same time, <laughs> they, they tell her some useful information because they're so wigged out, you know, yeah. because they're they're so unnerved and upset and frightened. And they they let it slip a little bit, but you can still feel yeah. that teenage contempt all over them, and it's great. Right? I, yeah, it's it's almost like they're looking for an authority figure to tell this to. They they want someone who's older than them who can be like take charge of with it and not have, like to get it off of their plates. Yeah, and it's not like the average adult is going to listen to a sixteen year old who says, "Well, she died because cursed videotape." <laughs> No, certainly not. Um, we also get our first glimpse of the aftermath, which is pretty grody. And I like that they do kind of just deliver it as a quick cutaway. Um, also, one of the things I liked is that uh, one of Katie's friends is a very young Adam Brody. I know, uh, right? Credited as male teen number one, but his name is Kellen. So that's fun. Yeah. Uh, the, the, one of the fun things about watching movies like this on Amazon Prime is just the the X-ray pop-ups yeah. that happen. And when that popped up as, uh, as Adam Brody, I kind of had a moment <laughs> of like, oh, my God, here he is in yeah. Marvel form. It's like oh, yeah. seeing oh, yeah. uh, Kevin Bacon pop up in the in Friday the Friday the 13th. It's just like you, yeah. you can't believe he was ever that young and floppy haired. <laughs> that's right you know it happens every now and then you get your joseph gordon levitt is in one of the halloweens josh hartnett is in h2o you know every now and then you paul rudd of course halloween has a lot of them <laughs> yeah paul rudd hasn't changed since back then though and i really want to know true. where what attic he's keeping <laughs> that portrait in he's part of the cult of thorn that's that's why it's uh <laughs> it's, it's helping him <laughs> Basically, yeah, like you said, she starts chatting with them. They reveal that Becca is in a mental institution now, and the rest of the teens who watched the tape all died the same night with the same disfigurations, and as we'll learn shortly, at the same exact time to boot. It's also sort of piecemeal doled out to us that Aiden is a bit of a medium, uh, although since he's just a kid, more like a small, am I right? No, I'm not. I'm not crediting <laughs> that pun. You get no points. <laughs> <laughs> that's all right i made myself laugh and that's all that matters 
But he sort of gets these flashes of what happened and wanders upstairs where Rachel finds an address for photo development. So he sort of leads her to the next step. Um, And she picks up these pictures and finds pictures that are, one, freaky and have all the faces all distorted, but two, indicate where they were staying. So, you know, nice, nice writing there to have it all work in double duty. Yeah, it's a nice effect, too. It, it looks very, mm-hmm. very cheap and easy to throw a, a Photoshop smear tool on top Morph. of people's faces. <laughs> but boy, is it unsettling. You know, it, yeah. it's it's interesting how easily people's faces can be taken into the uncanny valley when you just distort something. And the yeah. fact that they're all distorted in different ways, I think, just really, really helps make it unsettling. Yeah, and and the fact that we see them trying different cameras and everything, we see them have uh, piles of photos that all have the same effect. It's it's just done in a really effective way for something that does seem pretty simple, ultimately. Rachel goes to the inn that they were at, and she's drawn to the unmarked curse tape, and she stays at the cabin that the kids did to investigate, and she watches the tape. We get a good look at that Japanese maple. It looks really, really good as the red light filters into the room. And it makes it super creepy in contrast to the heavy, heavy blue-green tint that has sort of been the 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 look of the film thus far. This is a real grimy movie. <laughs> yes, certainly so. And like we said, this this tape is appropriately freaky, and it does it does pretty effectively communicate the story before you see the investigation pan out. Although that might just be like the Kuleshov effect in action. We're all just like, yeah, there's a thread here. <laughs> I mean, the music is telling you it's a threat. The, uh, her reaction is telling you a threat and that videotape is creepy. It's just yeah. straight up unnerving. Creepy. Yeah, absolutely. And and the tape ends and Rachel gets the call. Seven days. Click. Great. <laughs> ticking clock. <laughs> we get, Gets all Majora's mask on him. Thursday, dawn of the first day. Uh, my my old colleague Noel Murray started a film review once, and I I wish to God I remembered which horror film it was for, but it was something to the effect of there is no film in which a title card reading day one is, is ever <laughs> boded well for the protagonists. <laughs> no. And, Definitely not. That is just inevitably what I think of when we suddenly, usually it starts earlier in the film, but the fact that that's when we we get our first day one ominous title, yeah. it's very helpful because it'd be hard to keep track otherwise, but uh, it, it does, it is a little heavy handed. It's a little pretentious. It's a little laughable, <laughs> still really effective. Yeah. And I will say that because I'm a dummy, I really like that in comparison to the Japanese one, which just has the date that this is just like, okay, this is day one. This is day two. <laughs> no, spell that's, it out for me. I'm an American. That's right. I need that's my absolutely handheld. right. <laughs> this is when Noah, Rachel's ex and Aiden's dad comes over. He enters the picture here because she wants his help with the tape specifically. He He works with film and with cameras and everything. And so She's really using him more as a technical resource than an emotional resource, which I think is very interesting. It helps to set their relationship off on pretty equal footing. Yeah, I I think when you very first see them together, he comes across as just a colleague from the newspaper, um, potentially. And for all we know, that's how their relationship started in the first place. Maybe at a different newspaper. Maybe that's why he's not around where she's writing. Like Maybe she came up in the ranks and moved to a different paper. 
I, I really kind of like films that give you all of these little rungs to hang a very plausible story on, but does, mm. don't actually give you like the LinkedIn resume of. Yeah, like, feels like there's a world. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you can you have all the pieces here to, to put together a, a story that makes sense for the two of them. But when you first see them, it could be just, you know, she drops in on her uh, for her photographic expert, her her dude, her dude who knows photos. <laughs> and it's only slowly that you begin to understand that there's more there. Right. And so the reason that she wants his help is because her face is now being distorted in photos as well. And so this is when he watches the video. She goes outside. She does the rear window thing. And she makes him a copy to investigate further. And he reveals that there's no control track, which means basically there's no identifiers as to what recorded it. And we're starting to sort of get a little bit of the like the the lore of the tape and what makes it so interesting but this is cut short because of that that jealousy sort of rearing its head because this is when the uh the employee assistant walks in um and so rachel hurriedly grabs the tape and she leaves but there's also this element of her not wanting the assistant to see it she takes the copy because she doesn't want to be responsible for this other person being in the way. So there is, you know, you are kind of like, this is addressed. Noah does bring it up where he's like, oh, you were okay with putting me in danger. Like, why was that okay? It's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure that she herself would have an answer at that point. I think she wants them in shared peril to some degree, but she was also very reluctant to have him watch it. And right. I think his attitude, his dismissive attitude, even after watching it, probably makes her feel a little bit foolish because she keeps trying to convince him that there's something horrible going on and he keeps laughing it off. And she has that moment of, you know, am, do you do you consider me flighty? Do you consider me easily unnerved? I think she's feeling defensive about it. And she definitely does not want it to be something that he and his partner in crime, as uh, she calls herself, share together. She definitely doesn't want it to be something that the two of them can talk about and potentially talk about her behind her back. I do yeah. think that there's an element there of doesn't want to be responsible for potentially uh, causing somebody else to die. But I also don't think she really thinks she's going to die at that point. I, right. I think there's just sort of an, an instinctive, like, this is between us and you don't need to come into it. Yeah, it's it's very, uh, it's a complicated emotion that she's going through, for sure. Um, and I think that it's it's really interesting. But when she leaves, she walks under a ladder, classically bad luck. <laughs> uh, it's also the ladder from the tape, so that's got to be at least double bad luck. And we're finally at day three now. When Rachel goes to visit Becca, who's almost catatonic, but when Rachel grabs her hands and asks how Katie died, Becca animates a little bit to croak out a creepy warning and put down Rachel's fingers to indicate four days. Really good scene. I liked this a lot. It, you know, especially because the Becca that we saw earlier in the movie is so vivacious and full of life and they're having such a good time in this back and forth that they have to see her in this catatonic state is really quite shocking. Yeah. You never do find out where Becca was when things were going down. Clearly something happened because she saw the TV come on. She was around when the, the puddles were forming, but at the moment where Katie experiences what she experiences with the TV and, and dies, we have no idea where Becca was during any of that. We have no idea what she saw or what she experienced. So right, seeing, and, and she's calling for Becca the whole time too. Yeah, exactly. So like, where is she? 
just seeing the result of that is pretty unnerving. That said, if there's anything in this movie that doesn't quite work for me, it's the way random ass people suddenly start gaining uh, Samara sensing powers <laughs> and the way she's able to take one look at Rachel and say, oh, you've, you've seen the video and uh, you saw it three days ago and you're going to die right. in four days. Now, the touch can, of evil has got her. Yeah, you can argue that she's she's been touched by Samara, and like other people that you see later, that that may give Samara the ability to whisper things to her. Right. Um, I just I don't know why Samara is bothering. Like <laughs> Samara's like, oh hey, I haven't checked in. Um, I killed your friend horribly. Uh, <laughs> you're insane now. I, you should stay away from TVs. Oh, and this random lady you've never met before, let her know she's going to die in four days. <laughs> Thanks. Look, Thanks if there's K-Bye. one thing we see from the tape, it's that Samara has a flair for the dramatic. So oh, that's true, and she does really like messing with people. But that's, uh, right. that's her whole thing. She never sleeps. She's got all this free time. <laughs> she does have a lot of free time to be messing around with random ass people in uh, in asylums. She's it's got just... a little black book. It's soaked in water. She says, "All right, it's time to check in with Becca." Four days. It's got to be a book because, you know, she'd just short out a cell phone if she tried to uh, yeah. you know, like use a Google Calendar or anything like that. Damn it, another one. I feel like that's probably something, like, as a, as a sort of little aside in here, like, the Japanese equivalent of uh, Samara, Sadako, Sudoku, Sadako. I think if you Sadako, pronounce it Sudoku, it yeah. starts sounding like Sudoku. Yeah. Has just become a kind of an iconic, uh, like has become a, the the Japanese equivalent of what Freddy uh, from the Nightmare movies has become for us. Like there was sure, a in Cabin in the Woods, she's sort of the example that they use when uh, they're they cut to Japan fighting, uh, fighting off their their evil being. It's basically <laughs> the equivalent of of uh, Samara. Exactly, and it's a sort of in joke. But I mean, I'm talking about the fact that uh, like. They had a they had her uh, pitch uh, like the first pitch at a baseball game, you know, <laughs> <That's right. laughs> a sodden looking long haired ghost standing out of the pitcher's oh, mound, hugging a ball. They had a um, there was an ice cream treat that channeled this particular. I can't remember if it was uh, her or the one from the grudge. But it was basically an ice cream treat that was meant to evoke like like long hair, wet ghost. <laughs> And the idea that it's just some become such a like and I yeah I know right uh, <laughs> you 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 picture Rachel like fishing that uh, like long hang of hair out of her mouth and Ooh. that's what that ice cream treat would taste like <laughs> but the idea that it's, it's become such a jokey image like the way we're joking around about her you know not being able to carry a cell phone or whatever seems to be where she's gotten to in uh, Japanese culture. And I, I don't think we've defanged her quite as much in America yet. <laughs> no, not not quite. It's funny. I think that the comparison to Freddy is really apt in, in terms of sort of the jokiness. And, you know, maybe there's something to uh, to play with there like a like new nightmare, you know, in terms of uh, utilizing that as a as a jumping off point. Who knows? They did sort of do a little bit of that in Rings, the most recent one, which, as I say, was terrible. Um, right. I, you know, if if you're if you're looking for what happens when they when they knew nightmare this story, uh, that's the movie for you. But it's just it's go. not done very well. <laughs> that's a bummer. But uh, yeah, so Rachel she gets a hold of some analog video tracking equipment and she stretches the view to see that there's a hidden lighthouse in the tape. This is the uh, Yaquina Head Lighthouse in Newport, Oregon, built in 1873, and it's still active, plus genuinely supposed to be haunted, which is a nice little touch. Hmm. And uh, the fly stuff pays off, finally. This is so great. 
I love this fly a little bit. It's really <laughs> gross and creepy. Uh, her nose starts bleeding as well. I just think it's so good. It's a really weird detail, the business with the fly. I don't know what it means in terms of Samara's powers or, or anything we understand about her, but it is a legit creepy moment. I guess it mirrors what happens with Samara at the end, sort yeah. of, in a way, but... Uh, <laughs> The maggots turn to flies. I guess it's just like an association with death or something. Yeah, it makes sense. I, I like yeah. the fact that, like, I, I have a big hobby horse sometimes about uh, fantasy movies, science fiction movies, horror movies, not establishing what the rules are to the mm. point where it stops being scary because you're like, can they just do anything? Are they just right. going to do anything? This just feels arbitrary. And there are a few things in the ring that, that feel arbitrary, but they're so genuinely genuinely unsettling um, <laughs> that it it rarely sits poorly for me and that fly business is definitely one of those things that like <laughs> i'm not sure how this all how this fits into that that neat puzzle that you're building but okay i'll take right. it. right that's right that's right hey we'll we'll take a fly crawling out of the screen she digs deeper katie or anna no rachel <laughs> rachel digs deeper uh pulling out larger and larger books eventually linking the lighthouse to the woman in the video who she discovers is named Anna Morgan, a prize-winning horse breeder who killed herself when her horses started getting sick and drowning themselves. Uh, spookily, this stops when she dies. And that night, we finally get this scene that you were talking about where Rachel is on the phone when she starts choking and she it, she pulls out what initially starts out as hair and it kind of turns into an ECT hookup uh, and it's she's pulling it out of her mouth. It's like a damn wizard pulling ribbons out of her throat <laughs> the way that she has to pull out. It's really gross. And there's also blood leaking out of the receiver. Just another really great, eerie scene. And another scene of, okay, what are the rules here? Okay, I don't I don't care. This is also unnerving. I don't care. The rules are you pull an ECT meter out of your throat. <laughs> you can really, man, you know, as uh, I, I don't know if that was done with uh, with CG or uh, like a sequence of, of practical shots or what, but uh you can really She's got really good feel... at sleight of hand. <laughs> you can just really feel how viscerably unpleasant it would be if you've if you've ever gotten a hair stuck a little too far back in your throat and had to pull it mm. out. Like you can just feel what it would be like to have to pull a, a hank of hair out of your mouth yeah. like that. So yeah. viscerally disgusting. Not ideal. Not ideal. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> if you start if you start pulling hair out of your throat, I'm out of here. <laughs> oh no, it's happening. <laughs> um Rachel hears a noise and she goes to investigate, and we see the girl from the tape soaked in water and hair draped in front of her. And it does this great scare where she grabs Rachel and her arm is all rotting. Uh, and Rachel wakes up and she thinks it's a dream, but she has a mark where she was grabbed. Again, sort of like touched by this evil presence and everything. You know, one of my least favorite horror tropes is it was all a dream, but was it? Uh, this, this, it, I'm not sure that it's necessary. Mm. It gives us some some good shock imagery here, but uh, you know the the fake out dream sequence is just oh, it's so corny. It's such <laughs> a corny horror element, and there's so many scary things happening in this movie. There's so many things that have already happened that are terrifying. Mm -hmm. I just don't know if it's necessary to throw in one extra scare that's like, no, it wasn't real. But yes, wait, it was real. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I think that there there is a lot of truth to that. The one thing that kind of saves it for me in this movie in particular is maybe it's just because of linking Naomi Watts and David Lynch. But I, I think about how he talks about movies and TV as dreams. 
And I think that the way that Samara is like exists in this movie and the whole thing is her sort of crossing that barrier to me, her pulling through the dream into reality does does work on that level just because she's sort of showing that she can do that on the videotape level as well. Yeah, that's true. I mean, we certainly know that she can visualize things and make them real. And yeah. if that's your one power, it's a pretty flexible power. It, it can <laughs> be used in all of these different horrifying ways. But more importantly, I and mean, perhaps even more scarily, uh, Rachel catches Aiden watching the tape that night. He says he couldn't he couldn't sleep and he wakes up, he watches it. She freaks out. And now for her, the stakes are even more real because if there's even a possibility of it being true, she doesn't want this to happen to her son. It's 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 not just her life on the line anymore. It's both of them. She is not a good mom. You know, no. she's she's Working fragile. All the time. She's brittle. She's not around much. She yells a lot. They don't seem to have a close relationship. You know, that that <laughs> he calls her Rachel. Uh, <laughs> she talks to him like they're at a board meeting most of the time. Uh, relationship. Right. Again, just very different for a movie and for a horror movie in particular. I, I like it. I like it a lot as a touch. Uh, but it makes it makes it all the creepier, I guess, when something genuinely scary happens where like most movie moms would move to comfort the kid um, mm. or reassure them or try to help them kind of talk them through it. Um, and she just she blows up and she's mad and then she's lost yeah. in her own sad and scared emotions like she's just not there for him. And that's scary in and of itself. It it kind of feels like the Babadook is just like a an outgrowth of this strange, sad relationship between Rachel yeah. and Aiden here. Yeah, yeah, it is really interesting. She sends him to his room and, and she sort of just has this fit of rage where she destroys the tape and she throws it into the fireplace and, and she sets it ablaze and like just lets out this like scream sob that is, I think it's it is really interesting the way that it isn't a comforting moment for her that it is a little more selfish and inwardly looking you're thinking of at the end of the movie uh that's when she blows up and screams at him and smashes the tape on this occasion she oh, yeah. kind of screams at him and, and tries to whisk him away but it is very much the same reaction you know she yeah. she goes to anger much more quickly than she goes to comfort there you go yeah and uh and so noah calls at this moment and he's scared and he says that he <laughs> believes her and this is when we see that he's taken the pile of photos of himself all of the distorted face. This is so far from where he started that it does a really great job of heightening and raising the tension even more. And especially because we see that it, all of the support pillars for Rachel are starting to collapse and things are all falling down around her. It's just going to get worse, Rachel. <laughs> Strap in. Uh, she travels to Moesco Island to investigate further, but on the ferry journey, a horse throws itself overboard after Rachel touches it. Uh, first of all, of course, recreating some of what we saw on the tape, but also, man, the way that they shoot this, the close-ups on the horse and the way that it just slowly gets more and more agitated, really effective, really well done. It just looks really good to me. And it, uh, of course, the sort of after uh, the aftermath is very disturbing as well. Oh, man, the sequence. It's it's there's so many like really memorable, visceral sequences in this movie. And this is one that could be 100 percent excised without changing the story. But 
it's it's so necessary for the imagery and for the the feeling of emotional connection you know a, a lot of the the backstory she eventually uncovers has to do with dead horses but you spend very little time with horses in this movie apart from this sequence because because of their absence you know the absence created by the the plague that samara brought on them so having this moment with the horse I feel like she should realize much sooner than she does that she is wigging this horse out and that it's a terrible thing that she <laughs> needs to get clear of it. And she doesn't, she keeps doubling down. She keeps reaching out to it. She keeps hoping it's going to work out. The thing that has just terrified you is not the thing that you look to for comfort from being terrified. But then after that, the whole thing just takes on a, a sense of inevitability and the panic of the horse and the panic of all the people trying to restrain the horse and the way it all falls out and then oh, that horrible moment with the propeller. Really, really memorable horror stuff. Yeah. Yes, certainly so. And she finally makes it to the island. She speaks to Anna's widower, Richard, played with delightful understatement by Brian Cox. I think he's really doing a lot with a little bit of screen time here. Oh, he's great. Yeah, definitely. And and meanwhile, Noah is off breaking into the psychiatric hospital to get Anna's records. Aiden is at home continuing to be a creepy kid and drawing <laughs> extremely heavy pictures of the well. So... There's our three. It's surprising <laughs> how much of this film is terrifying sequences of people breaking into places they shouldn't be <laughs> to read things they shouldn't read and do things they shouldn't do and then just not getting caught. Yeah. You know, the the sequence in the newspaper morgue where she's originally finding out all of this information, it feels like somebody's going to come along and chastise her for throwing stuff everywhere. Right. When when Noah breaks into the uh the asylum's morgue and is going through the records it's all shot and scored like at any moment somebody's going to discover him and something bad's going to happen the guy is even like you are the last one to check this missing thing out and you're like oh man he's really screwed here and then he just shows up again later and you're like nope, okay no fallout <laughs> and then eventually she breaks into brian cox's house and there's just you know it's time after time after time it feels like they they go places that they're not supposed to be. I mean, that's part of the theme of the movie yeah. is being curious and doing something you shouldn't do and, Drawn and by paying for it. Yeah, going into places where you don't belong. And yet there's there's so little there's there's so much already hanging over their heads they don't also need to be assaulted <laughs> for uh for breaking into places and and reading forbidden lore right but uh <laughs> the the film gets a lot of mileage out of break-ins and forbidden lore right and uh they both separately discover that anna had this adopted daughter samara who lives in a dark place now but when rachel tries to talk to richard about it he denies that she exists and says what is it with you reporters? You take one person's tragedy and you force the whole world to experience it, spreading it around like a sickness. And I think that kind of ahead of its time in terms of the way that social media wasn't nearly what it is today, but we do see the way that negative engagement with news media and just social media in general, you know, that's what people engage with. And, and it does spread a lot faster when you're being negative than when you see uh, positive stuff, just because it gets more of a reaction out of people. And there really is a kind of dreadful fascination with tragedy that leads us to seek out a lot more tragedy mm -hmm. than in is in any way mentally healthy for us. Yes. I, you know, as a journalist, albeit an entertainment journalist, I, I kind of feel the sting of being blamed like, well, it's it's your fault for putting it out there, not anybody's fault for picking it up. 
but I do think that he has a point in that this is a very private, small, sad tragedy. And it's none of her business, yeah. much less the business of the whole country or the business of the whole world if she puts it out there on, on social media. But, of course, he's also talking about the videotape. Right. He's also talking about how this could have been a self-contained crisis and a tragedy for a family. And instead, curious people like Rachel and Katie and, and Becca and Jake, like all of these people – just keep spreading the illness and it gets further and further and costs more and more lives. Yeah, exactly. Rachel heads over to the island's doctor, Dr. Grasnick, who sort of fills her in on the backstory of the kid. The two of them had tried and failed for years to have a kid. They went away one winter uh, and they came back with Samara claiming she was adopted. I also did watch the deleted scenes. I saw that there was one where one of the fishermen on the island it talks about how Richard and Anna had sort of messed with nature for years in their attempts to try and create a, a child of their own. So, you know, it is kind of interesting where there is uh, the way, you know, the way that urban legends do get built, where people are filling in the blanks with their own imagination in ways and being like, oh, maybe she's a demon child and they made a deal with the devil to or an ocean god to to make this this child that has these powers or whatever. But ultimately, uh, Dr. Grasnick says that Samara has the power to sear images into people's brains and that this is what drove Anna mad and just generally brought the island down. She says that uh, when you're on an island and somebody has a cold, it's everybody's cold and they all have to deal with this problem basically is what they're saying that even if it is just the one family's problem, as Richard is saying, it's really not because it, it the power does sort of emanate off her. It does the ripple effects of it started sort of spreading out. I think the less we know about where Samara came from, why she has these powers, why she's so weird, the better. Yes. Because it really is a, a very, very rich vein in folklore of childless people wishing for children and ending up with something supernatural. And sometimes it's a, a good, warm, emotional, uh, supernatural thing. You know, sometimes it's it's the peach boy and sometimes it's some sort of uh, dreadful thing that answers. And then sometimes you get, you know, Pinocchio and you have a, a child that isn't a child mm -hmm. and might hopefully become a child one day, might redeem itself. Hands My Hedgehog is another good story like that. Just these stories of things that aren't human and might become human or might take humans down with them. Yeah. So acknowledging that bit of folklore without explaining it is 100% the right way to go here. Yeah. I think it's a great decision that they deleted that scene for sure. But of course, like typically, uh, as as with all things, like the sequel's got to dig further into it, <laughs> dig further into the past and dig further into the, the meaning and dig further into the folklore and expose a bunch of stuff that we didn't need to know. Like, yeah. I like the mystery here. Absolutely. I totally agree. Richard and Anna ship off Samara to the psychiatric hospital. And as far as the doctor knows, she's still there. Rachel goes back to the Morgan farm and the, the door is open. So she just walks in. Um, a nice shot of her in the mirror as she enters, of course, mirroring the video. And she finds a box of Samara's medical files, including a certificate of live birth and a videotape of Samara in a psychotherapy session where she says that she can't control her abilities and that she doesn't want to hurt anyone, but that she knows Richard doesn't love her. Uh-oh, there he is. <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting that he keeps that videotape in the player. Like mm -hmm. one wonders 
is it just sitting there and he's never watched another videotape since, which would not be surprising no. um, given the things Samara can apparently put on the TV or does he go back and revisit it? You know, is it just him poking his old wounds over and over? Yeah. Picking up the scab. Either one of those answers is uh, sad and disturbing and they're equally plausible. Yeah. And uh, he hits her really incredibly hard. Uh, and he says that Samara is never going to whisper in his ear again. And then he he kills himself brutally. And Noah meets up with Rachel. And we get another look at Brian Cox just floating in the tub. And this is really where I was like, I cannot believe that this is PG-13. <laughs> this like That would have devastated me as a 13-year-old <laughs> to see this dude floating in the tub like that. It is really gruesome. They get over it so fast, <laughs> yeah. though. They they both kind of ha- do one of these like, oh, that's that's horrible. Okay, so what have you learned? <laughs> they just they snap back so fast. It's yeah. bizarre. Yeah, it certainly is. But uh, they do they do indeed snap back. They head to the barn where Samara was kept on her own with the horses. Very gross and creepy again. And they find behind the wallpaper an image of the Japanese maple tree burned into the wall just like Samara was able to do with brains and x-rays. And so it all sort of comes together here. Samara can burn these images onto stuff, drive people mad. She did this to the tape that we heard was supposed to have a football game taped onto it when the kids brought it there. And it's sort of her reaching out and spreading it the way that she had been doing on this island. (laughs) Rachel and Noah head back to the inn, uh, and they discover a well there, boarded up under the floor, which is, of course, the last image on the tape. Whose whose decision was that? (laughs) Who came along and said, hey, creepy old well, let's build a cabin on top of it. (laughs) I mean, I've stayed in rural cabins and I've never ripped up the floorboards. For all I know, there's a, a... weird haunted well under every single one of them that's right it just seems like a weird choice a chicken in every pot a well in every cabin that was famously (laughs) saying you would think that they just open it up and uh fill it up with water and advertise it as a like a free free hot tub oh yeah who 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 says no (laughs) but they're 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 investigating this well obviously they're like this is creepy as hell part of the videotape but while they're focused on it the room starts to come to life behind them very good very creepy more of these great close-ups and a swarm of flies bursts out of the well and the commotion slash Samara's powers cause a shelf to break and a TV to fall and knock Rachel down the well. Very appropriate, of course, that the TV is finally the thing that pushes her over. <laughs> that said, all right, so I'm I'm glad that something happened to push her into the well and she didn't, uh, the, the first time I saw this movie and every single subsequent time I've seen this movie, uh, having forgotten what happened, I've kind of had a, she's going to go down that well. Why would anybody do that? Why would anybody in their right mind make that choice? Oh no, she's Take not going to choose away. <laughs> But that said, the whole process of the, the, the bolts unbolting and the screws unscrewing and the nails slowly sliding out of the floor. I'm stuck in a final destination movie. Mm. This is exactly what they look like. These sequences of, of things undoing themselves leading yeah. up to these Rube Goldberg disasters. <laughs> And it's a little hard for me to take seriously. Yeah, look, I I genuinely love the Final Destination franchise. They're very silly. <laughs> They're very silly. You, you you go to them for the spectacle, not for the like. Wow, I'm I I'm so scared for these characters. Um, oh, and for I sure. think I think that it is it is kind of an interesting choice. But I do think that it, it is played 
pretty straight in this to a way that does at least give it a little more gravitas for me personally. I mean, the Final Destination movies vary a lot tonally. And sure, sure. They're- a really good example of that kind of thing where the first movie in a fra- in a franchise can be scary and by the time you've gotten to the third or fourth sequel it, it's a joke yeah. you, you know you don't care about these characters five is good again just... though <laughs> all you care about is what ridiculous elaborate way they're gonna die in right but having seen too many of them again it's it can be hard to like loop back to something earlier that that wasn't meant to be in this vein but now looks different yes definitely while rachel is down there she finds scratch marks on the walls of the of the well and a fingernail which is Pretty fucking horrifying, if you ask me. It's pretty bad. Uh, the top of the well moves itself and sort of seals Rachel in there. And while she's inside, she has a vision of Samara's death. Anna suffocated her and shoved her down the well where she died seven days later. And the titular ring is the sun leaking in around the well cover. It all slams into place just like the well cover did itself. It is such a good image. After everything that we've been through just having this image flash itself subliminally on the screen over and over uh having rachel actually say to noah i think before you die you see the ring the the choice of of what the ring is what it means is just it's one of the the most indelible horror images i i can think of in cinema yeah. uh that feeling of it's like the end of the vanishing you know the the moment where things fall into place too late for the character is certainly what it feels like in that moment yeah absolutely and and it's very uh unnerving as well and it's it's not made better by the fact that samara's corpse bobs to the surface and rots in rachel's arms <laughs> i really like how nami watts plays that uh it, it's almost like she's burnt out on terror mm-hmm. to the point where you know she's she is now sympathizing with a rotting corpse that's how far she's come through <laughs> all of this in in understanding what samara went to went through and it's a actually a tender touching moment yeah with a with a rotting corpse it's still gross it's gross but it is touching but it's gross <laughs> well it's certainly touching her yes that's part of what makes it so gross and noah yells down to say that it's past sunset and that she made it through the seven days hooray we did it <laughs> <laughs> end of movie happy ending yeah it, it really feels like that's what they're setting up and the cops come and they tell noah and rachel that samara will get a proper burial the two of them go home it looks like they might even get back together everything is hunky-dory until morning comes and rachel dun, tells dun, dun. aiden about what they did and he panics as much as we've seen him show any emotion in this movie and says that she just freed her to go forever. What a great, great rug pull. This is so fun to have this shift. And we're all like, it's playing on our expectations. We're all like, great, the ghost is finally at rest. This is going to be the conclusion. And Aiden is like, what did you do, you idiots? <laughs> Again, just one of the one of the great all-time film reversals, film mm-hmm. twists for me. And it's the look on his face after... All of the things he's been through, how little emotion he's shown, just him finally taking on the burden of dread that we've seen in everybody else in this movie. Uh, just that moment alone, it's it's so unnerving. Yeah, it definitely is. Noah, meanwhile, is back at his place, and he gets murdered by Samara, who continues the tape, emerging from the well and then crossing through the TV set as well. I thought she was going to be slow. She's moving pretty damn quick. Uh, She still has the artifacting on her as well, which I think is a nice touch uh, visually. It's good stuff. Uh, You know, I I think that it's, it's a nice thing because we've seen the tape 
sequences so many times that when it continues for this first time and we see her sort of coming up out of it, it really does feel like like a shock and and you are you're drawn in immediately to oh oh no what's happening next. Yeah, having seen this multiple times and having seen so many horror horror sequences and horror parodies derived from it, it's lost some of its shock value for me, but I can still appreciate the artistry of just how much she does not fit into the world. She's yeah. black and white when the world around her is in color. She's so clearly and visibly saturated and rotting. You know, she she literally is a drowned corpse. And she the way she moves is strange. The way she's a video effect is strange. The way she has the artifacting in the real world is strange. The way she moves toward him and judders and flickers and isn't where she was a second ago mm-hmm. is just deeply deeply alarming i don't have the dread of it that i used to that when i saw it in the theater i went home and literally couldn't sleep couldn't (laughs) couldn't close my eyes kept having an image of uh this thing for whatever reason not crawling out of the tv but crawling out of uh our our washer dryer just that that round portal into darkness (laughs) i did not want to go down into the basement because you'd have to step into this room where this this round hole into darkness was definitely going to manifest a dragon. that fills with water too it's the perfect setup for it (laughs) thanks for reminding me Still a creepy image, but uh, at this point, taking a step back from the the anticipation and the the worry and the the dread, just the ominousness of it all, mm-hmm. I just look at it as, as a really, really well put together piece of film craft. Yeah, certainly is that. Rachel gets to the apartment, but she's too late to save Noah, and she's freaked out by the disfigured corpse. Hell of a scream by Miss Watts there. It really, you know, it's it's, it's very powerful, and and it, it sort of you see how this has really finally struck home for her. This is the first time it's hit someone really close to her. It's also a a really nice bit of uh, teasy misdirection in that she, she knows that she does not call out to him. Once she enters, she realizes that he's dead. She can't help but go to look at him anyway. And it's still worse than she thought. And she shrieks, but we don't get to see what his face looks like. It's, as she's as she's moving up towards him and reaching out for the chair, it's the end of Psycho. You know, it's yeah. we're we're anticipating uh, that chair spinning around to reveal some sort of rotted horror, and in our mind, because we've seen it once, we know exactly what it's going to look like, and it doesn't get revealed. She just looks at it, and we get her reaction and nothing else. And it's a great bit of misdirection and a great bit of, of anticipation making you visualize it for yourself. And then like two minutes later, uh, yeah. just slices in an image of what it looks like. Like, okay. Like, no, you, I got you. I got you. You've had your anticipation <laughs> moment. You've had your wigged out moment. You've had your imagination rolling wild moment. All right. Now I'm going to shift, just shove it in your face. Yeah. Like, I, really appreciate both of those choices yeah I, I it's a really great little moment i really i was like oh man i'm I'm a little disappointed that we don't get to see it <laughs> and then he hits you with it and i, I was like oh gore you've done it again <laughs> <laughs> um she also she leaves it there and we see his assistant girlfriend going up that's going to be a hell of a sight for her to walk in on yeah what a what a hell of a weird move i understand <laughs> that she still does not want to talk to her ex's girlfriend slash partner in crime whatever the heck she is but hiding in a corner <laughs> 
to leave that poor woman to go Ooh. deal with what's upstairs. That's cold. You're, you're a you're kind of cold there, Rachel. Yeah, but yes, like you said, this is when she goes and she destroys the original tape and she throws it in the uh, in the fireplace and she's trying to figure out why she was spared. When it clicks, it's because she made the copy, which Aiden watched, spreading Samara's pain, which is her goal, really, ultimately, all along. And uh, as we get a glimpse of the, like we said, we get this glimpse, and Rachel decides that she's going to help Aiden make a copy for himself. And he asks, what's going to happen to the person they show it to? Rachel doesn't answer. We close on the well, then static, then one last little start with a few spooky images like the horse eyes all playing at once. Roll credits. Great stuff. Well, he asks her what happens to the person that we show it to, and she looks into the camera because we're the person she's showing it to. And, you know, <laughs> there there literally were in that long ago uh, a theatrical viewing, there literally were people walking out of the theater talking to themselves about like or well talking to each other i i didn't see anybody like like full-on glazy-eyed talking (laughs) to themselves but but talking to each other about so are we gonna die in seven days (laughs) like i literally heard somebody say that the movie invites you to wonder to yourself like of course it's not true yeah but what if it's true you know at the beginning of the movie they're all they all say the same thing well yeah of course of course it's not true but this movie deliberately leaves you walking out the door thinking, but what if? Yeah, and I, I think that this is the kind of thing that will only get better as it becomes more of a physical media thing. And at like, the, you know, stumbling across a, a tape or a disc of it or whatever and, and feeling that. And, and the, as it sort of becomes a little more lost to the ether of time and, and people start to forget about it a little bit and people come back to it and they say, oh my God, I just watched this crazy movie and it was all about how you watch this tape and you die within seven days. And it could, you almost see it sort of taking on a second life as it ages in a really cool way. Yeah, I'm all for it. I'm all for people rediscovering this movie outside of the the giant bolus of J-horror, outside of the hype around it, I guess, and just discovering it as, as a horror movie. Yeah. As with pretty much all horror movies these days, I worry that it'll look corny and silly and disjointed if people are watching it the way they tend to watch movies these days. If they watch it on their phone mm. uh, in in chunks throughout the day, like when they happen to have 10 minutes on the train or whatever. Yeah. Such a sadness. You think you've watched <laughs> a movie on your cellular phone. Get real. But, you know, if if you watch this movie uh, at at noon with the curtains open while you're uh, scrolling through Facebook, it's it doesn't cast a spell. It's just it's not going to be scary. And you can say that for most horror movies. I, I don't understand how people could consider themselves horror fans, but watch movies in ways that don't don't respect the the spell that the horror mm-hmm. is trying to build. And this movie, more than anything, just, just strikes me as. It's building a picture one piece at a time and you got to watch it. You got to pay attention and you got to watch it all linearly and you got to turn the lights off and let yeah. it do its thing. Absolutely. And and if you put in the, that little bit of setup, I think it really it, it works super effectively. There, are, I, I like the way it ends. There are a few deleted scenes that address what might happen. One where Chris Cooper is a criminal that gets shown the tape and another one that I think is a little interesting where it ends up on the employee picks shelf of a video store sort of playing into that second life that we were just talking about. But ultimately, I do really like that it just kind of cuts and leaves it a little more ambiguous. Uh, I I think that it's really great. 
And um, now, Tasha, we've reached the point of the episode where we sum up why this is not just a good horror movie, but is, in fact, the best horror movie ever made. And uh, I'll let you start things off. Well, you know, I'm going to uh, cavil on this because <laughs> I was actually super relieved to see that uh, you had a, a lengthy library of episodes <laughs> under your belt here. And I could I, I didn't have to choose between is the thing a better movie than The Shining? Do I love Cabin in the Woods more than I love? Uh, I forgot what else was on the the just sort of immediate short list. There's a lot of really good films in your list. Yes. And I was glad to see each one of them eliminated from the list. <laughs> but when I found out that you'd never seen The Ring, uh, there was just immediately no question on my mind. <laughs> For me, this movie is just it's just about airtight. It, it like every element of it the the acting the, the visual design the cinematography the score the script the the progression the pacing the editing the jump scares i'm normally i find jump scares tedious and yeah, cheesy lazy like they work on me but but they're easy and boring yeah. they work here every element i think of this horror movie works but it's also interestingly symbolic you know, it's it's also got just kind of a rich story about how information spreads and how tragedy spreads and how willing we are to pawn our disasters off on each other to keep our own skin safe. I just I think that this is a really rich text in its way, but it's also a, an exciting and, and fun and scary experience. I think it's a great piece of just like pop entertainment, but also a great piece of film craft. So I'm going to say with the gigantic asterisk of uh, 20 other horror films you've already covered <laughs> that this is the best horror film ever made. Hell yeah. I think that this is the best horror movie ever made because <laughs> I think that it just, it hits, it executes so incredibly well on what it's trying to do. I think that Gore Verbinski was the exact right choice for this because his focus on visuals are so important it's it's absolutely integral to this movie that the imagery be scary and be interesting and draw you in and i think that that's exactly what he's bringing to the table in a really indelible way i think that the choices like having that blue green tint to a lot of it and and being set in the seattle area and having those those deep greens and blues contrasted with the bright red of the of the Japanese maple is so evocative and so powerful and like she says it really like sets the room on fire and all none of that exists I think without Gore Verbinski really coming and bring his own sensibilities to this and it's taking a great ghost story and really improving on it in a way that I, I think is really great I think that sometimes having quadruple the budget of the thing you're based on can help who knew <laughs> <laughs> And I think that the actors are doing a really good job in it. Like we said, the, the creepy kid is such a hard thing to pull off and they strike that balance. Naomi Watts is doing a really great job. Brian Cox, I thought, you know, like I said, I think he has like four minutes of screen time, but he, he does a lot with it. Ultimately, the fact that this did permeate the culture in such an interesting way uh, and affected me personally as a kid without even seeing it. And then for it to still hold up all these years later, I mean, it's got to be the best horror movie ever made. <laughs> uh, Tasha, I want to thank you so much for coming on. This was an absolute joy. And please tell the people where they can listen to your your other podcasts and, and, and read your writing and all that jazz. Well, I'm a film and TV editor at Polygon.com. And I don't get to write nearly as much as I used to anymore because I'm uh, managing people and, <laughs> and managing freelancers. But once in a while, I still get to write about films. And when I do, it's pretty much either animation or horror. I'm on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. 
the next picture show is the podcast that I, I do weekly with a group of friends who worked together at the AV club and then worked together at pitchforks movie site, the dissolve, the late lamented right. every week we take a, a new movie and contrast it with an older classic movie that we love that maybe is by the same director, maybe just has similar themes or similar ideas taps into similar uh, concepts and uh, we we compare and contrast them and see what the two of them have to say to each other so you can find that by searching for next picture show on stitcher or uh, apple podcasts wherever fine podcasts are sold probably wherever you're listening to this you can find it yeah exactly or just generally <laughs> find it on the net um yeah. and you can find it on twitter at next picture pod yeah it's a great show i definitely encourage people to check it out i i, I love the way that you guys do that compare and contrast it's such a unique thing and the way that it is sometimes not, it, it's more of like a mirror image kind of thing with the, I was, I was just listening to the Nomadland episode that you guys just put out and the way that you contrasted that with something that's a little more lighthearted <laughs> and, and oh, kind of sure. mocking it as opposed to sort of this, uh, this character who's really sort of immersed and it's, it's much more of a, uh, open and, and kind hearted look at, at these people who have uh, a little less structure to their lives. Let's say, um, I, I just think it's, it's a great show. So definitely people go check it out. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. As far as my plugs, uh, people can find the show on uh, little horror PHL on Twitter. If you're enjoying the show, you can get more of it at patreon.com forward slash little horror PHL. We're doing all kinds of great stuff, including a really, really awesome bonus episode on Solaris that I'm super proud of. And we also, uh, every week I've been watching X-Files for the first time. That was another big thing that I missed. And I'm watching four episodes of X-Files every week and we're doing a watch along and discussion on the Patreon and it's a whole lot of fun. Somehow I missed out. Like I didn't, I don't even have like any knowledge of what goes on in this show really. So truly tabula rasa enjoying this, this nice X-Files watch along. And it's a lot of fun. So I definitely encourage people, if you like that show to check out the Patreon and all tiers get access to the X-Files watch along. And uh, that's pretty much it for me. So uh, thanks everyone. Bye. <laughs>